Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Øystein Kalleklev joined Flex LNG in 2017 after serving as CFO of Knutsen Offshore Tankers since 2013. Previously, Øystein worked as CFO of industrial investment company Umeå Group. In this episode, we discuss why Øystein started having a passion for shipping, why he thinks Flex LNG has a unique market opportunity going forward, and his best tips for people to understand and succeed in shipping. Let's start the episode. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Okay, everyone, welcome back. Another shipping episode. Super happy to have Oysten in the studio. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Christopher. Good to be here. You haven't done shipping your whole life. Can you take us back to the first memories about business and why you got interested in working in business in general? Actually, you know, I think it was like around 1990. And uh, I, I, you know, I loved computers. I got my first computer when I was eight. Today you get computers much earlier but you know uh, and then I came over this game called Ports of Call which is a fantastic game I think it was developed in 86 or 87 by two, two German guys and the concept was you know fantastic you know you were handed four million dollars and uh, you were to be a ship owner so uh, it had all the nice features so the first thing you have to do is to buy a ship and of course, if you only have $4 million, you have to buy a secondhand, pretty cheap ship. So once you buy the ship, uh, you know, the condition of that ship is not very good. But, you know, regardless, you know, uh, you just have to deal with it. And and first thing you need to do is to find a cargo. So then you have to go to a ship broker, find a cargo. And once you get a cargo, you could e- either, you know, you could have these cargos where you have a time limit or you could have no time limit. But if you have a time limit, there's a penalty if you don't arrive at time. So once you have put, selected your cargo, you have to you plan your navigation. So, you know, if you have a time limit of, let's say, 30 days, you have to put the speed so that you can make sure you are uh, arriving at time. But you don't want to spend too much fuel because then you're not making any money on the cargo. And, and during the transit, stuff can happen. So there are, you know, storms where you have to either go through the storm or, uh, or, or deviate, which will cost fuel and time. Uh, and, and, uh, or it could be like going through the Mala- Strait of Malacca and you need maybe some assistance. And, or, or you could get end up you know, with pirates. So, and then once you're arriving in, in, in port, you have to berth it so you can buy you know, tugboats. But if you don't have money, you have to actually navigate the ship yourself and then accidents can happen without tugs. So... And then, you know, you have to build up your fleet. You may be buying newer ships. You have to make sure that the ships are in, in condition. You can sell and buy ships. So, you know, this, I, you know, I started with this game, you know, 30 years ago. It was a fantastic game. And, you know, actually, I have a colleague here who used to be a ship broker. And he had this intern coming into the office. This was also in the 90s. And he asked him, have you paid pot of coal? And, and the guy said, you know, I, I, I've never heard about it. And then he said, Okay, go home and play that game for a couple of days and come back. You're no use for us unless you played it. So, so, uh, so that was the first time and really fascinated me. It was a fantastic game and it was really, it showed how interesting shipping is because anything can happen. You, you can make a killing and suddenly you can lose a fortune. So basically, the only game I remember playing maybe growing up was uh, The Sims. I don't know if you heard about it. Yeah, I played all the games. So, I played, you know... Oil imperiums, capitalism, civilization, colonization, the railroad tycoon, pizza tycoon, you name it, I played it. Do you think that those who like love to play those, let's call them maybe strategy games. I know The Sims isn't so much strategy, or maybe it is when, if you try to keep the people happy, if you build a house for them. But basically, do you think that sometimes we underestimate the potential to learn a lot about game theory and stuff by playing a lot of games because... 
many games are strategy based, right? Either you have Age of Empire or whatever. So basically, mm -hmm. you your brain is working quite high intensity if you're playing the strategy games because you're always trying to make the right move in the game, right? And like yeah. you said, maybe that's relevant in your job day to day. Yeah, I think so. You know, all all the, my favorite games were strategy games, and of course, playing with my friends and and beating them. You know, and, and most of my friends, I grew up in the I would, what you would call the village today, and you know, most of my friends were a couple of years older. And then, if you can beat them by by making more faith in them, it was of course, you know, that was fantastic. I love that. Can you talk a bit about your experience as a CFO in Umeo Gruppen? Because that wasn't that shipping oriented. I guess that was more maybe financial engineering. Because I, I don't know how the portfolio looked at that time, but it had yeah. it was pretty diverse, right? Yeah, but you know, actually, um, so after I finished my business schools, I went to Accenture because I I loved IT and. So I thought business and IT would be great in Accenture, but uh, you know, being a consultant, I, I thought, you know, you're not really making a lot of decisions. So I joined Umo Group in 2006, and actually, it was a very big shipping and and oil and uh, oil and gas company at that time because it has a big portfolio. So the the starting group of the Umo Group was actually the shipping company called Knutsen in 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 So Knutsen was one of the biggest shipping companies in. In Norway, and, and they went in financial hardship in the 70s because of the tanker crisis. They bought some big, ultra large uh, tankers, and, and and like a lot of owners, they, they ended up in distress, and the banks took over, and they put in Jens Ultratmo as uh, a new managing director, and and basically the family was washed out. And and he, uh, together with Trygve Seglem, who's running the company today, they built that up and sold off all the assets and started in this niche segment called shuttle tankers. So. At that time, you know, the North Sea was developing and the problem with the North Sea is that the, the seabed is very, you know, uh, it's not very flat. And so you, it's hard to build pipelines to some of the fields. So they developed shuttle tankers to get the, the oil from oil fields to, to, to terminals. Uh, and so they, they got their first uh, contracts in 1984. And when, when I joined Umo in, in 2006, then... Jens was 50% um, owner of Umo, now of, of Knutsen. Uh, he was uh, uh, the chairman of the company, Trygve on the, the other part. Uh, but he was also chairman of you know, PGS, the seismic uh, company, which he took out of chapter 11 in the early 2000s. Um, and you know, a lot of other businesses like restaurants, IT, uh, you know, I even have had a naval yard in, in Mandal making kind of uh, defense and, and naval ships for the, the Norwegian Navy. So a lot of different stuff. But so actually when I, I started there, I, I was starting working with shipping. So at that time, uh, Knudsen had, you know, was the second biggest shuttle tanker operator and, and also uh, starting to become pretty big in LNG. So, you know, uh, I started working on the financing of a lot of these ships. I remember like 2007, we uh, we ordered four LNG carriers. And the price of LNG carrier at that time was $250 million. But all of these ships were on, on long-term contracts. And, and this was before the financial crisis. So, you know, I, I couldn't believe how plentiful there was with capital and, and, and at, at, at a ridiculously cheap uh, cost. So it was amazing. You know, we were building ships at 250 million and we got 250 million dollars of loan from the banks at, you know, rates, you know, in terms of the margin on these loans that you never see today. So, so uh, you know, I started working there with, uh, with, uh, with shipping and uh, eventually Jens decided to sell out of the shuttle tanker business uh, in 2008 and, and refocus a lot of his capital on, on, uh, on, on renewables. So we also sold a lot of PGS and Kernelan and a lot of other ventures. And, you know, uh, but, you know, at that time, we also had the financial crisis. So it was a really <laughs> interesting time. Um, uh, but, you know, he's kept his LNG ships. So he's still part owner of some of the LNG ships in the Knudsen fleet. You touched upon uh, the renewables and there's a big debate about how to time this green sort of market because... The idea can be right, but if you're, let's say, five years too early, you will yeah. probably lose all your money. In like a broader sense, how do you view the, the timing aspect? Because you can see the correct move, let's say the correct chess move, but it doesn't mean that you will take it 
as soon as you see it, because it also needs to like fall in place in terms of financing, timing, financial markets, etc. Can you sort of like broadly, you can you can talk about the green, the green stuff, but like in general, how should investors or business people view the landscape and how to make those strategic investments and moves? No, I think you know, timing is everything in investment. That's you know usually you say timing is everything in shipping, but I think that applies to a lot of other industries as well. So, you know, uh, for for Jens, we we invested in bioethanol in Brazil. So I was quite often in Brazil, producing 250 million liters of ethanol made from sugarcane every year. And then also we started looking at building polysilicon factories in in Canada for which is the feedstock for uh, you know the the wafers which you make into the solar cells but you know um, his timing was too early um, another aspect is of course you have to be really good at what you're doing so timing is one thing but you have to run your business very efficient having the right people making sure that you are uh, you know up to speed on the new development that you're running your operations very lean and efficient so so uh, yeah, I, I would say that you know you have to have both the timing, but also have to to be able to run something very lean. But isn't it also like if you run an international company, it's also like this political uncertainty that is very hard to calculate, even even if it's a president or it's a new tax, new laws, etc. Have you yeah. seen some issues that you were like thinking at the time? Oh my God, how do I solve this issue? Because you've seen Norwegian companies maybe operating in Brazil or Asia. And also, basically, like the, the salmon industry can have tremendous challenges if suddenly China or Russia shut down their borders, right? So mm. how do you cope with that? Is it about having a lean organization? And also, should you have a plan B at all time if you run internationally? Because you have to expect the worst and like yeah. be prepared for that. Yeah, I think, you know, I can give you a very good example. You know, if we started investing in ships in 2017, LNG ships for flex and and, and continue in early phase of 2018. And, and because we saw that there's been underinvestment of LNG ships for a long time because the market stayed very weak in 2014, 15, 16, and 17. And a weak market doesn't really induce a lot of new investments. But the market was also growing. So we saw that, you know, there's a need for more ships. You know, um, so on paper, 2019, 2020 looks like fantastic years for LNG shipping. You know, I don't think anybody expected rates to be below because all the fundamentals were, were pointing in the right direction. But what happened then was first you had uh, an election in the US where Donald Trump uh, put in a very uh, aggressive line towards China in, in terms of trade. Um, so kind of you had a trade war. You had, as a result of that economic uh, slowdown in China, uh, also having some uh, some spillover effects. Then we had a, a, a record warm winter, El Nino, and of course gas is used for a lot of heating. So so that really depressed demand. And then we we had one more year with very record warm winter last year. So you know, and, and then when we finally thought that okay, snow, you know, we had two record warm winters, all this stuff. Then COVID happened and oil price crash. So. You know, we've seen a lot of this risk playing out, which, you know, nobody really could predict. But when we put up our company, uh, you know, we've been in shipping a, a long time. We know that stuff happens. So it's kind of we've been conservative in terms of raising capital at the right time, making sure you have a lot of cash because you have, at some time you have to maybe burn through some cash. And, and, and also having sure that you financed all your ships so that the day when the rain is pouring and, and you are knocking on the doors for bankers, of course, they are also affected by the sentiment. So if the sentiment is very poor, they're probably not very eager to lend you money. So we have been in ahead raising that financing. And so even though all these problems, trade war, slowdown, COVID, you know, warm winters, you know, we have been able to, to operate our ship and, you know, we have got the financing we have also been conservative in terms of our kind of uh, charting strategy that we have to have a certain amount of ships tied on contracts that give us utilization. So we don't end up with all our ships in the spot market, despite the fact that we were very bullish on the spot market. So, so for this year, you know, we, we have our cash break even uh, when fully invested around $45,000 per day. So it means that 
every ship has to generate $45,000 of, of income per day on average. So this year, despite this very <laughs> difficult market, we made 68,000 in Q1, uh, 47,000 in Q2 and Q3, and we guided 70 to 75,000 in Q4. So on average, that balanced to around 60,000 for the year, given we have taken some new, new building deliveries. So even in a very poor, you know, terrible market with the, the biggest economic uh, kind of crash since the Great Depression, we are able to, 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 to do pretty well. So, so that is about, you know, having, making sure that you are robust in your business strategy to cope with uncertainty. Is the, the sort of the analysis pretty similar to what a hedge fund manager would do in terms of alpha and beta? So basically you have to, you have to set the, the, the risk you want, but you also need to say goodbye to some upside, even though you think the market can give you that upside because so many people have compared shipping to, to stocks, basically, that is so volatile and then so like fragile in terms of the how volatile it is. So do you think it's, it's pretty similar, the decision you do as a shipping owner compared to maybe a stock picker, that it has to be like risk-based and you need to calculate both alpha and stuff? Yeah, I, I think actually an option trader is more applicable than stock trader because, you know, usually you say shipping is about options with propellers. So, yeah, certainly, you know, when we think about stuff, we think about value at risk is something. So then you think, okay, I have, let's say, I have 10 ships now in the spot market. Our cash break even is 45. You know, let's say market is just terrible and you're making $35,000. So if we're making $35,000 on the new ships, you know, the old ships should be making zero or less, <laughs> you know. But then you think, okay, how long can it stay, this port? Uh, how much money do we have? So that kind of drives your your kind of willingness to take risk and how you think about stuff. And so you know, having a lot of and cash is of course one thing, and 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 kind of optimizing your financing and your cash position to your business strategy and and the risk you are taking. So so yeah, I, I think it's a, a bit like being an option trader, and and you have to be humble that don't think too linearly, so that don't think that you know this happened and this happened, you know, it's like more like it's just random. So you have to think more in like what you call a quantum theory rather than, uh, you know, uh, Isaac Newton's clockwork or, you know, universe of kind of uh, gravity. So it's, it's more, think about probability, be humble that, you know, the market can be totally different with what people are thinking, but just be prepared for everything. But, but if you can build that analogy a bit further, who's the central bank and who's the politicians in the shipping industry? Because they also affect the stock market or the yeah. option trading. Of course, dollar is, you know, dollar is the currency of shipping. So, uh, but, you know, we are in, in that sense naturally hedged because our assets are dollars or debt is dollar or income is dollar. Uh, you know, the good thing with a strong dollar is that, you know, it becomes very cheap to operate from Oslo compared to, to some other places if the Nokia is weak. Uh, but, uh, you know, dollar interests is, is very important because if you look at our capital structure, you know, I'm probably going ahead of, of myself, but I, I mentioned a cash break even of 45,000. So, you know, but, you know, our, our OPEX, you know, operating expenses is like $15,000 per day. So that means 30,000 is capital. Uh, and that means that, you know, most of your costs are capital. And that's just to serve the debt for the debt. But, you know, so the people buying a stock, they also want a return. So, you know, maybe in order to give them a satisfactory return, you need to make 65000 So your operating cost is fifteen, and then the capital is 50000 So the cost of capital and interest rate are also very important. So, so of course, we are looking a lot at what, you know, the, the Fed is doing and saying. Um, but then, uh, you know, in the end, it's the economic growth and, uh, that is driving, you know, demand for, for energy. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then for LNG in particular, you have also this other factor about decarbonization. You know, are people shutting down coal and switching to natural gas in order to reduce the CO2 emissions, but also reducing local pollutants? That is also another driver. So then you are talking more about politicians and the Paris Agreement and, and such. So you don't want to hedge a small amount of capital in Bitcoin? <laughs> no, I don't think so. We, we, we stick to stuff we know. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's pretty interesting because many companies are not doing it. So big American companies are putting a small capital base in Bitcoin because it's a great hedge against dollars. So if yeah. you view on, on the returns on Bitcoin the last two years, no, no, nothing can match it, basically. So I guess it's coming, but it's also, uh, given your IT experience, I guess you, you have to be a bit interesting in the technology blockchain or not at all. Yeah, I think blockchain has a lot of impact eventually for shipping. You know, just think about bills of laden. You know how much work that is if you can have a you know bulletproof system for bills of laden i think also for kind of like ship registries so you know who is this customer i'm dealing with you know uh, so it also goes into this know your customer and know your business partner so i, I believe blockchain can be pretty uh, big in in shipping and because it's so many actors it's global and but but uh, as an investment uh, vehicle, you know, I rather that we we buy back your stocks, which we have done lately as an investment. Yeah, so I guess you don't want more variables in your Excel oh. sheets. Oh. Probably it's enough already. Okay, yeah. can you? I don't know how much you can share, but as a CEO, how does your own Excel sheet look? How much variables do you put in Excel when you do analysis, or do you try to keep it? very structured and as simple as possible? Or do you like to build Excel sheets that are very advanced to take everything into account? Of course, when I started with, uh, you know, uh, shipping in 2006, I did all this kind of Excel models and I made like this huge uh, Excel sheet. And my, my boss who's the CFO in, in Christen today said, you are the Northwest European champion of Excel. And I had this huge sheets. You know, you could calculate everything and you update one variable and then you change your budget and, and stuff like that. But today, I think, you know, it's more simple stuff back of the basically back of the envelopes. You know, you can get lost in all the details. You have to you have a couple of variables, you know, your cash break given, the rates, how long can you endure uh, low rates uh, and, 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 and then kind of the return on capital. And, both return on your assets and return on the equity. So fairly simple. Today, it's no more than one sheet. Can, can you talk a bit about the, the LNG market? And maybe a good place to start is Japan in the 70s. And then we can also uh, go forward today where there seems to be a big market opportunity. Countries switching from coal to LNG gas, but maybe start in the 70s just to give yeah. people an introduction because many people don't really know the history. So basically, we need to maybe take them along the journey in the LNG market. Yeah, I think we think we actually have to go even further back. I think we have to go back to 1959. <laughs> so actually, in 1959, you had the first uh, shipping uh, cargo of LNG. Actually, it was from Louisiana to to UK. So this is where you have a lot of exports today, down in Louisiana, with a lot of this shale gas being exported, and especially to UK, which has basically pulled the plug on coal. Uh, so then they converted a cargo ship uh, built during World War II to LNG carrier. It was 5,000 cubic. So that's basically the size today for these bunkering ships. Um, but the, it really the market took off when Japan entered this market sourcing a lot of, uh, of gas because in, in Japan, of course, they don't really have a lot of natural resources. So they imported a lot of oil. You had, uh, you know, the oil crisis in the 70s. They were very vulnerable to, to shocks on the supply side. So they have to diversify. So they, they started buying, you know, LNG from places like Alaska in the US, which is very close to Japan. Um, and then eventually Brunei and, and, and Middle East. So, so that became the biggest market. It's still the biggest market. And, and, and the kind of the play was then uh, getting rid of oil, getting gas. And of course, gas was cheaper and, and actually gas was cleaner. So it's, that's why a lot of LNG still today, actually 70% of LNG today is priced based on the oil price, typically at a discount of oil. Uh, because that was the model. You you made a 20-year contract for buying LNG. You you did it at, let's say, 10, 15, 20% discount to oil. Everybody was happy. And it was like a liner trade. So you were buying it. Uh, and then you charter a ship for 20 years. And it went A to B, A to B. It was basically an integrated part of the, the kind of the utility pipeline. So it's a floating pipeline into a utility project. And LNG shipping was the most boring shipping segment in the world for a long time. Um, actually, it's only the last 10 years you have had 
uh, a rapid transformation of LNG. Uh, so, you know, when I started LNG in 2006, you did these 20-year contracts. You had 100% leverage, so you didn't need to use the capital markets because you didn't need equity. You could be a private owner and get the money from the banks. This started to change after the financial crisis. Banks were more reluctant to 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 uh, to lend. You saw the first, you know, LNG shipping company going uh, public 2005 with TKLNG, and then also the underlying LNG market started to change. You know, people didn't want to do 20 years contracts. And rather than this being utility players making electricity or heating, it started to become the big oil companies started to join the, the LNG game with Shell, Exxon, Chevron, all the big ones. And, and uh, eventually what has happened is that, you know, LNG is becoming more of a commodity in its own self. So rather, you know, this year, you know, correlation between oil price and, and LNG has been very, you know, small because LNG is becoming our own separate gas product. And, and then, you know, I think, you know, we have a very good slide on this. I've used it so many times that I haven't used it lately. But the last time I used it was on our Investor Day slides in February, which is available on our website, where we have said, I think it's called something like uh, LNG shipping is, in, is maturing or something, where we put this into three stages, LNG 1.0, <laughs> which is this old point-to-point -point trade with old steamships. You know, people weren't that focused on efficiency back in the days. So they had a steamships which consumed a lot of fuel, but, you know, nobody really cared about that. And then you had this second phase, LNG 2.0, when the oil companies started to enter the, the market and contracts become shorter. People started to use the capital markets. Ships become uh, slightly more efficient. And then now we have the third leg, which is LNG 3.0. Uh, where the traders are, are, are come, you know, are the more like the dominant new driver and force of, of the market. And, and this is what happened to oil after the oil crisis in the 70s. You know, Glencore with Mark Rich, they started revolutionize how, how oil was created. And, and this is happening now in LNG. And, and the ships become much more efficient. So it really going from the least efficient ships, they become now the most efficient ships. So it's uh, it's an interesting story. And it's a story that is developing as we're still having a lot of growth. And we actually saw some evidence of this uh, last night. Uh, South Korea today or yesterday announced they would shot 15 coal plants during the winter in order to reduce pollution. Uh, and of course, this is particularly important now with COVID-19 being primarily a respiratory illness. You don't really want to, to put out a lot of, of pollution in there. And, and natural gas, when you burn it, it's, you know, it burns clean, so you don't have socks, you don't have particle matter or fine dust. You reduce NOx by 80-90%, so, and, and mercury by 100%. So mercury was one of the drivers for gas becoming important uh, in, in Europe in the 70s and 80s because we had all this acid rain, which people have to deal with. Uh, and and we get, you know, gas, when switching from coal to gas, we get rid of the, the mercury and the acid rain. Can you put this, maybe let's take India as an example, because many people die of the consequences of too much pollution. I don't, I don't know how many cities India has on like the worst 15 cities in the world based on pollution. Yeah, last time but... I checked, it was 14 of the 15 most polluted cities in the world are in India. So it's a tragedy. So can you explain the opportunity in India that is basically should be a win-win if they manage to switch maybe to more LNG and of course also renewables because maybe you can also explain in that India example that the reason why LNG is, could be an important factor is that maybe the renewables aren't that reliant so basically they they're more volatile in terms of the energy you have available so basically LNG can sort of stabilize the, the energy um, that a country needs in order to operate more cleanly. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, we had a, I had a seminar on this, which we called uh, Irmageddon. Uh, I think it was like two years ago. And uh, just to explain maybe a bit, you know, because it, this is in, in economics, you have a guy called Simon Tutsnet, who made a, uh, a graph about, you know, your propensity to, you know, um, kind of uh, spend under certain income levels. And, you know, if you are very poor, you know, your pollution is not that on top of your list. But as you are growing more uh, affluent, you know, pollution becomes actually on top of your 
concerns. And that this is what happened in China now. If, if you look at China, of course, they still have a way to go on GDP per capita. But if you look at the coastal cities, if you go to Shanghai or, or, um, or you know, Beijing or Ningbo, these cities are like cosmopolitan cities where GDP is on par with, uh, you know, so a lot of European cities, it's, you know, $30,000 plus on per capita. So if you are living in those cities, you are highly educated, you have children, maybe not children in, in plural, but at least a child, some, some might have too. Uh, then, of course, pollution becomes very important. And, you know, one thing in China they are very afraid of is, of course, social unrest, especially by the, the middle class, highly educated middle class. So, so then certainly pollution has become top of the agenda in China and they pushed a very you know, hard policy on getting rid of coal and switching to natural gas. And actually that policy has been for free this year because natural gas has been as cheap as coal. So, you know, that's certainly driving demand. So in India, of course, you are, you know, still not at that level in terms of economic development and, and purchasing power of the middle class, but you are getting there. And, and actually India, you have a much bigger problem. In China, they dealt with it. The pollution in the big cities are, have declined substantially, but in India, no, it's just become a terrible. So we do see that India is, uh, you know, becoming the has become the fourth biggest export importer, and you know they will continue driving. But the political process in India is much more complicated in in China, where you know if Xi Jinping and Politburo says something, it's uh, fiat, so it's done. Uh, while in India, you have a lot of special interest groups, which makes you know the rollout more complicated but that's it you know india is very focused on this so they are spending a lot of money on uh, a gas pipeline network and getting you know these cities cleaned up because it's it's uh, becoming hard to live in those cities in, in economic theory or basically maybe startup theory many people talk about how to leapfrog technologies so basically you know in africa it's much more natural to have your bank on your telephone compared to a computer if you take your LNG market and pair it up against renewables, do you feel like there's, is there a way to be leapfrogged that you go switch directly to renewables and you don't need LNG gas? Or do you feel like LNG, you need to have it regardless 20 years ahead? Yeah, I think, of course, I've worked a lot with renewables. So one of the limitations is, of course, the fact that usually for solar energy, you get solar energy one sixth of the day, you know, you don't get it in the evening, not in the dawn, you don't get it in the night. So, so, uh, so of course, you have to have uh, access to electricity all the time. And of course, batteries are still, you know, not very efficient in terms of, uh, of, you know, weight, especially, um, and costs. Uh, so, you know, that's a big limitation on, on solar. And certainly if you have like, you know, sometimes happen, you know, you have a cloudy day or something and suddenly, boom, solar production goes down. You have to have something to, to react quickly. Wind, you have similar problems. Wind is intermittent. So you need something to balance it. And the best thing to balance it is gas. You know, it's the cleanest hydrocarbon. You are reducing CO2 by more than uh, half compared to coal. And then you get rid of all these pollutants, which I mentioned, which is maybe more important. Uh, for most people so so i think you know that's why you have this you know symbiosis between the renewables which is intermittent and gas which you can easily switch on you know, if you it's not very common in norway but in europe it's common you know you have uh you, you, when you're doing your cooking in the kitchen you just push a button and gas is on and you fire and, and of course that's the the benefit of, of gas you can switch a button and you have power so i do think that you know you will see, and most you know, and research on this is that, of course, gas is the only hydrocarbon that will continue to grow. And and actually, if you have rapid decarbonization, gas will have to grow quicker because you have to turn off a lot of coal, you know. But down the road, eventually, you need to find a way to decarbonize co uh, gas on. So uh, we had our investor day in Q4 in February, as I mentioned, and, and it's, it's it's available on our website uh, still. Uh, and we had one guy there who explained uh, carbon capture. So we had a presentation about this because I think it's very important for the gas industry to find ways to decarbonize um, LNG or, or natural gas. And 
his company was just recently actually acquired by Baker Hughes. So he had a startup company was which was acquired now two, two, two weeks ago. So there's a lot of focus on this. So if you're getting rid of the carbon from from LNG, what do you end up with? It's CH4. If you get rid of the C and splice the H, you are basically hydrogen. So C, methane or LNG is a building block for hydrogen. I think eventually that's where we're going yeah, in some form. How much energy in your mind should we produce just based on the ocean? I mean, 7% of the earth is ocean and we do a lot of projects in Norway. Uh, how do you look to that market, the potential next 20 years? Can you just put it up all over the world to produce energy? Or is it hard if you don't have a natural mountain and water running down streams from mountains? And I think, you know, hydropower is, of course, the best form of electricity. It's um, fantastic here in Norway when you can charge your car at uh, negative spot prices during the, the night time. Uh, and eventually, you know, we need to connect Norway better to continental Europe. That actually the hydropower in Norway, is, in some sense, it's getting wasted. You know, we're spending this valuable resource on, on base load you know, hydropower should be peak load. So if you have something uh, in continental Europe, sun is not blowing, now sun is not shining and wind is not blowing, you could put on this battery and export uh, the electricity. It would be much more valuable in that form. So historically in Norway, we have exported uh, energy through uh, smelters, aluminium. There's no reason why Norway should be one of the biggest exporters of aluminium. We don't have the, the bauxite, which we're importing from like Brazil, but we have electricity so that was the way to transform electricity to something we could sell um, uh, but you know there are a lot of opposition to expand hydropower more these days i think you know uh, you know if you look at one of the big projects Gorges dam in, in china of course there was a lot of opposition at that, that time so so i think there are limitations to hold but how far you can uh, build the hydropower. But, but can't you can't you copy Denmark and just put that model all around the world? Just putting up wind farms in the ocean and let the wind blow? Or yeah, I, I, I was in Denmark. I have an EV and I was driving down there uh, last uh, autumn uh, going to uh, Legoland with my kid. And I charged my car and it's uh, it's only like 95 kilowatts hour. It cost me 700 Danske kroners, equivalent to 1,000 Nokis. When I charge it at home here in Norway, I, I don't know how much do I pay? Five corners maybe? So of course, electricity is a luxury product in Denmark. It's very expensive. So of course, you could build windmills everywhere, but the area that you would cover with those windmills is just staggering. And, and, and then you need to build a supergrid so that if it's not blowing one where you could import... Uh, I don't know, wind from uh, Siberia or wherever you have to take it. So, and then of course, uh, I haven't started on all the land use and the fact that, uh, you know, what do you do with these uh, windmills once they are uh, retiring, you know, so it's composite typically. So, so I, I think you have, you, you can't just have one big idea and say, okay, we solved the problem. We built a lot of windmills and the energy crisis is solved. You need to do a lot of different stuff. Uh, and I think you need wind, you need solar, you need gas, and you need carbon capture. And, and you need a lot of entrepreneurs and startups. But, but isn't it interesting? Uh, I can't remember the equation, but I, I just think I saw an equation if, if like the electricity or the energy sort of compounds, because that's natural, because people want to take a shower each day, probably. So you have India and all these countries in Africa. So just by compounding, a very small amount of compounding, well, well, it will be exponential because if the world should go like to have, if everyone should get to middle class or something that looks like it, the graph of the, of the energy consumption is enormous. It's like you, you could cover the whole earth with solar, but it's still not enough for every person. So it just shows you how complicated it is and that maybe you have to try a lot of stuff and it needs to build synergies to all the resources available. Yeah, so, you know, this is why economics is still called that uh, the dismal science is because Thomas Maltos wrote this book, uh, Principle of Population, or something, I don't know, 150 years ago. But uh, he saw that people population growth was growing, food production was only growing this far, and you know this would become a crisis. And then, of course, uh, he was proven wrong because we ended up uh, uh, finding better ways to make food, 
And then we had a similar discussion in the 70s where you had this club of Rome with all these other economists. And there, there was one guy, um, Paul Ehrlich, writing a book called uh, Population Bomb, which was a bestseller. It was a bombshell <laughs> in, 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 the, in, in, the, in the bookstores uh, where he said, you know, commodity prices would just go rising to, you know, extraordinary levels because people are buying all this stuff and they need commodities. And then there was another economist who bet against him and said, I don't think they're going to go. You know, we will find new ways to, to develop. And uh, commodity prices peaked. You know, they didn't go up as much as we thought because we were better at, uh, you know, oil is uh, $47 now. It's, it's, uh, it's not uh, gone up on an inflation-based uh, adjustment. And aluminium is like, I don't know, $2,000. So it's still cheap. And I think, you know, we have a lot of the similar discussions with this climate crisis. So we've gone from... You know, food crisis, commodity crisis, and now we have an environmental crisis and a lot of economists are doing this projection, this graph and this graph. It doesn't match. We are screwed. Uh, but, you know, they are always um, underestimating how entrepreneurship and startups can develop new technology to, to solve the problem. We just need to get capital out to smart people put money on it, and then make regulatory framework where politicians are not telling people, you have to produce one million windmills. We just have to get a CO2 tax, which is global, so that we don't have all these leakages, which has basically happened for the 20, last 20 years. Production has been moving to places where it's cheaper to pollute. So you need to have a global carbon price. And then, of course, by having that, you will incentivize people to do smart stuff so i think it's manageable but uh, but you need to have uh, politicians not being too eager to micromanage i agree it's like i think the rule that just says something like show me a person's incentives and i'll show you the result yeah. sort of applies to everything and especially in business because the smartest brains are usually competitive so their incentives will be to perform so if you have a regulatory system that says you you tax carbon very high like those brains will just find another way to perform, right? Yeah. But why can't it, you do uh, it? This is the good thing with uh, the market economy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, just the last question uh, on this round. If you if you sort of try to forecast and also put your own company in that equation, what should typically investors look for? How should they view the market? How should they view your company? If you just spend some minutes to thinking ahead of some years, maybe, and how you should how you should evaluate your company and also the industry. Yeah, I think just briefly, I, we haven't talked so much about the excellent years. I just mentioned, you know, we started up, uh, you know, actually, John Fredriksen, he's the principal share owner here, and he, he founded Golar LNG in 2000. He did very successful there, sold out in 2014, and, and then we put up a new, uh, or he took over a, a ship company in, on, on Oslo Stock Exchange called Flex LNG, which had two new buildings under construction. And then we have scaled that company, so now we are, 13 ships, 10 on the water, and three for delivery early next year. You know, all these ships are the new type of ships. So, you know, there's an IMO regulation now. Uh, there was a, a ministry meeting last week, and, and we are going to uh, decarbonize shipping. So the aim here is by 2050, you are reducing your CO2 emissions by 50%, but the in carbon intensity by 70%. And the intensity production need to be 40% by 2030. Um, the baseline here is 2008. How much did the ship emit per ton mileage? Uh, so all ships, uh, the new type, the, these ships has a carbon footprint, which is 60% less than the old steamships, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, so we are already almost done this 70% carbon emission reduction today that we need to meet in 2050. So that's why when Danske Bank, they came out with the ESG report in October, they took all the uh, shipping company they are covering, and then they were putting them on the scale in terms of techno technological risk. And, you know, there was one outlier down there where you, the risk was, it was green, basically no technical risk. It was flex LNG. It, 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 no, we were, in, you know, you know, by far ahead of everybody, because we invested in new ships, which has a much lower carbon footprint because they are big and efficient ships. Um, and then, you know, we are already compliant with 2030. We're almost compliant with 2050, but 
you know, this is based on our fleet. So, I, you know, probably you will invest in some more ships by 2050. So I think, you know, we are future-proof in, in terms of regulation. And, and we are actually very, you know, eager that, you know, politicians and regulators are pushing ahead and getting rid of the less efficient ships, uh, not only because it's uh, good for the environment, but it's good for us as uh, a company who have invested in the new ships. And we spent two and a half billion dollars on this. So, of course, we are <laughs> focused on, 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 on getting some benefit from that. So you're not losing sleep that some some trading people are saying this company is wrong valued because you think it's future proof. So in the end, if you if you go ahead a couple of years, I mean, there's also always a risk in whatever company you run, right? But basically, you have less risk than others. But still, is there some risk you're open to share that yeah. you maybe could be timing wrong a new technology? So if, if it comes next year, a breakthrough, then suddenly. The, those other fleets that are behind you can suddenly get ahead because that's so yeah. interesting about game theory because it's not about being the first it's about being the last man standing on the board so how do you view that yeah i think in terms of technical risk and as i mentioned we're very comfortable there you know we've kind of we made this leap frogs from steam propulsion to four-stroke diesel electric to now a direct drive two-stroke propulsion so if you are to build a highly efficient container ship today or a tankers, you know, this is probably the engine you would like to go for. It's dual fuel, so it can burn gas and, and liquid fuel, and it's very efficient. So the thermal efficiency is more than, you know, 50%. So it's, it's basically on par with our onshore combined cycle gas power plant. So, of course, you can always tweak a bit, but, you know, it's, it's really efficient. And then, you know, you can always do some hydrodynamics, but, you know, that it's, it's, it's not like we are there's going to be a revolution now. With the revolution already happened, so now it's more evolution. Uh, so that means that, you know, we have less technical risk. We have tried to eliminate the financial risk by having, you know, we raised $1.7 billion of debt, long-term debt the last two years to finance all the ships. We raised 800 and, uh, okay, we raised 629 million of equity in 2017 and 18, but it was already prepaid 210 million of equity in the company. So we raised two, we raised the two and a half billion dollars of capital. We bought the right assets. We have very low technical risk. That means that we can take risk other places because you know risk is like a scoreboard. You know with different risk uh, risk, and then if if a lot of those are green, then you can maybe take some more yellow or hopefully not red, but <laughs> on some other like charting strategy because we know that these are the ships people will want to have and. So I think for most, we've taken probably more chartering risk than, than most people because we have been comfortable with that given our ships and, and balance sheet. Uh, and, and then there's one area where we never take risk and that's how we operate the ships. Uh, because, you know, if you are, if you are, you know, making shortcuts on running the ships, you're out of business. That's, you know, you're licensed to, to operate. So actually, uh, two years ago, a bit more than two years ago, we, decided to take full control of how we operate our ships. So we built up our in-house ship management company to run our ships rather than relying on, on just uh, third parties to do it. Uh, given, you know, that each ship costs like $200 million, it's a huge investment. So we want to make sure it's, it's, uh, it's run the way we want it. We want to make sure we get all the information we need. We want to make sure that seafarers are being treated well. And, and, and one big problem this year has been kind of crew rotations. So we have been ultra focused on, you know, every, you know, every week getting a list, how many people are overdue on the contract, how can we deal with it? Can we find a solution to get these people off the ship? And when I presented our, our Q3 report last week, I was very happy the fact that 93% of our seafarers are on time, so they're not overdue on the contracts. And then there are no people more than 60 days overdue on the contract because we hear these stories about people being stuck on ship for a very, very long time. So, so that's something we, we don't want to have and we want to avoid it. And if we have to take deviation to get people off the ship, we do it. So, so you know, that's, that's the way we think about this. Gotcha. Last question, if you could uh, recommend or if you could give a recommendation to one book everyone should read and one computer game everyone should play and the reason why you recommend it. It should basically be 
for business people, but it could also be very relatable to shipping or something you should just read for fun and you will learn a ton as well. Yeah, just one book, you know, it's uh, that's a difficult. No, question. you can take a couple. You can take a couple <laughs> if you want. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, you know uh, books. Of course, you have. Uh, I just read one which was very good uh, recently, which is uh, the man who solved the market. And this is about the mathematician. He was PhD. I think he got like a PhD when he was 23, three years from Princeton. And then he started with computers to make algorithms. To uh, so basically, it was the first one you know, to solve uh, you know the market and to make. And he started this fund called the Medallion Fund, which is the most successful fund in the history of investing, even more so than Warren Buffett, uh, because he started later. But did he solve uh, it or? Did he just solve it in the right time? He solved it in the way that he made a fortune every year. You know, every year. Eventually, they were so successful that they repaid all the money to their investors because they were so rich that they didn't want to manage other people's money. So they paid it back and the fund became private and they only managed money for the people who worked there. So it's, it's a great book. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there's also, you know, a lot of other good books. Uh, if you want to learn about economics, there's one book called The Naked Economist, which kind of gave a, just a brief overview of, of economics. Uh, uh, and, of course, uh, Tim Harford, who writes in, in FD, has a lot of good books about different uh, uh, economics, like uh, The Undercover Economist was the book he kind of got popular with but there's a lot of books after that and then if you want to invest i think the best book about investing is john Kay. um he has a book about investments uh, for people who are not in the industry for, for who's not in the industry or with normal uh so something called normal intelligence or whatever uh, john k it's it's a it's a very good book about investing explained all the basics in a in a very good way and he also writes in FD. Um, in terms of games, I you know I don't play that much games anymore. <laughs> I don't have the time. So, <laughs> so um, there's probably new games that are more popular. I know my son; he's five years old now. He plays SimCity, and that I also played when I was uh, young. That's an awesome game. Okay, perfect ending. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.